Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're back to talk more about the gear side of photo and video. So Sony announced a new camera. Yeah. It's the FX30. And just to give a brief rundown of the features, it has the same body as the FX3, but as an APS-C sensor, it can do up to 4K 120, and it can record 422 10-bit internal. It has IBIS and the same Sony autofocus that everybody talks about and everybody loves, and it's $1,800. So what do you think about that camera, and what what are your thoughts when you see that? I, had, I, have, I have so many things. First of all, with... Sony releasing the FX30 and Fuji coming out with the X-H2 and Canon coming out with the R10 and the R7. I feel like it's we're, we're right right in the middle of APS season. APS season, huh? <laughs> yep. Uh, did you come so, up with that all by yourself? I did. That's what I'm calling it. So welcome to APS season, everybody. The FX30 is the latest entry into the, into the lineup. I think this one is super interesting in that it's... A, Sony's first APS-C camera since the A6400, which came out late 2019. So three years, this is the first thing they've come out with. It is a different sensor. I at first wondered, like, why aren't they putting a stacked sensor in this thing? I mean, it's a it's a video-first camera. They could have, you know, probably pushed the dynamic range like Fuji. They could have, you know, had better rolling shutter and all this stuff. And it's probably because of price, right? This comes in at $1,800. Your stacked sensor cameras are going to be twenty five hundred or three thousand. So that's a good point. I thought, okay, it's so they're it's a budget conscious entry into their cinema lineup. Well, then, like, who's it for and who does it compete against? And I feel like in order to hit that eighteen hundred price point and trying to meet all of the specific FX style features, like the dual gain ISO and 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 that sort of thing, or the dual gain sensor. They had to make like these just strange, strange compromises, and not, not even compromises, but just I don't know choices. So it's a it's a six K sensor, and it is super thirty five. But even whenever you're shooting in normal, just normal video mode, like four K twenty four frames per second, it's a one point one crop. They're never shooting at a non cropped version of the sensor, <laughs> because in order to like get the scale down to whatever UH, UHD where 3840 by 2160 or even like you know DCI 4k they're they're having to do some sort of crop and I'm like I'm fine with crop I shoot super 35 all the time and I, and I think it's really cool but it's just so weird for this one that it's like every mode has a different crop factor going up to like 120 and I don't know so I just I thought it was kind of in a weird weird spot with weird compromises. Yeah, and the 4K 120 crops a lot. I mean, it's like one, I think it was like 1.55 or 1.62 times or something mm-hmm. like that. 1.62. And, and that's not that's not like APS-C has a 1.5 crop. That's like on top of the APS-C crop, right. you get that additional crop. Yeah, it's, it's less sensor area than a GH5. Six, sorry, GH6. Yeah. I mean, that really kind of drives it home. Like, it's not saying you can't use that mode, but it, it's sort of like they really wanted to get that onto the spec sheet. Mm-hmm. And they just did whatever they had to do to get it on there. And that's kind of a weird choice. Yep. Yeah, and so I'm looking at this kind of compared to, you know, what what it's going up against and what's currently out there on the market. And, you know, it shoots 4 2 10-bit internal. That's really cool. 
it doesn't seem to shoot at you know very beefy codecs like that 422 internal 4k is you know like 200 megabits per second oh okay i didn't actually get to look that up and like that's fine that's probably mostly what you need but you know and other cameras can shoot you know higher higher stuff or they can shoot like all eye at a a higher bit rate so if you need you know more flexibility in those or you know better less compression basically is what that means it doesn't shoot ProRes internal it'll shoot It'll shoot 16-bit RAW, which is strange because it's capturing 12-bit off of the sensor. <laughs> so where are those four bits coming from? <laughs> well, like, it's capturing 12 bits off of a 6K sensor. And so it has more than 12 bits of data when it downrises sure. to 4K, but not 16 bits worth. It seems like it's good for what you get for the money. It's basically in line with everything else as far as, you know, dynamic range. They're advertising 14 stops at dynamic range and... Uh, Cine D hasn't done testing, but Gerald Undone did, and you know, doing the um, whatever Xyla Twenty One test, it's they are showing fourteen stops, right? It's like two of them are buried in the shadows, but and there's twelve that you can see, and if you do noise reduction and, and edit grading, then then you can you know get your fourteen stops, mm-hmm. which is pretty good because I think that the yeah the text three is, is fourteen okay. So tell me how that 14 stops compares to other cameras that we might have used or talked about. I mean, is that yeah? So right I mean, it's it's or? better than it's better than obviously like your Micro Four Third options. It's pretty close in line to something like the uh, like the FX3 or the A7 III, A7S3. Sorry, the A7 four i think is right about there as well it just kind of comes down to like how much you want to deal with noise reduction and i think that's really where you're oh i didn't spend thirty five hundred dollars on a camera like what's what's the problem here yeah that's the catch i guess yeah the catch is noise and like that's kind of the most interesting thing is you know your full frame equivalent versions of this like obviously talking about the fx3 because it's you know three versus 30 your fx3 at you know say 25600 iso is maybe going to be less noisy than this camera at like half of that twelve thousand eight hundred or or whatever it is. Right, and so, and people would probably assume you know like it's a smaller sensor, of course it's going to have more noise, but mm-hmm. I mean it's a pretty big difference from their full frame stuff. Right, yeah, it's it's you know not like deal breaker or anything, but it's it's enough to notice. And so if you're not in a well lit scenario, this FX three may not be the right option. But if you're budget constrained, it might be. So, you know, there's it has pretty good dynamic range, but the noise is just going to be a little bit of wor- a little bit worse. Uh, it seems like the IBIS is fine. The autofocus is your standard Sony autofocus, so that's all pretty good. So I just it's a it's a pretty interesting interesting camera. I was surprised to see that there's no open gate recording. That is a little surprising because it's six it's a six K sensor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a six K sensor, but you can only shoot up to four K. It's over all of the modes are oversampled, which is right. fantastic, right? And so you get really sharp imaging. But I just it's a it's a cine camera. Why would you not be able to shoot open gate and then shoot on anamorphic? Yeah, I mean, probably the reason is they they can't even shoot four K twenty four without a crop. Mm-hmm. If the sensor is six K, if they wanted to use the whole sensor, they would have to be able to do it without a crop, mm-hmm. and they just don't have the processing power for it. And that's that's so surprising to me. Yeah, it makes it feel kind of flawed in that way yeah i i'm just i'm just trying to figure out what is this going up against it's a it's a video camera you can still take pictures with it but it doesn't doesn't have a shutter it's all electronic i mean i I would say it's like not a photo camera it's not a photo camera you you there's 
there's no eyepiece. Or I guess it's just the just the screen on the back, and the screen on the back isn't even very good. Not you know super high res, and so it's like, are we comparing this to like Black Magic type cameras, like the 6K? Or are you are you trying to compare it to? I mean, you're not comparing it to like an XH2S, maybe an XH2. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit more in detail about some of the competitors. I think that's interesting. And I mean, you mentioned the Blackmagic 6K. That was kind of what what immediately came to mind for me when I thought about what is who needs to be worried about this camera having released. And I feel like Blackmagic might be the the biggest threat um, because. The Blackmagic 6K is a little bit more expensive. Uh, it's $2,000, whereas this is $1,800. Pretty similar specs. It's got 13 stops of dynamic range. Doesn't shoot 4K 120, but I don't really know if you can say the FX30 shoots 4K 120. I mean, it does, but with that huge crop. Uh, it does have, the Blackmagic does have two mini XLR inputs, so it's it's really more similar to getting the FX30 with that mic adapter. So you got that going for you. It can use an NPF battery. But the Blackmagic doesn't have IBIS and it doesn't have any real autofocus to speak of. I think it has AF single, but it's, I mean, it's like nothing compared to what Sony gives you. So I think those are two of the factors that really kind of set it apart. But it's, and it's cheaper too. It's just, it puts it in a weird spot. I mean, the, the 6K also has built in NDs. No, it doesn't. No. What? So the, the 6K Pro does, oh. which is $2,500. Okay. But okay. the regular 6K does not. So we, right. we both used a 6K. Right. And the one we've used does not have built-in ND. Right. And, like, to me, you know, you're buying a, if you're buying a, a Blackmagic 6K, that's, like, I'm going to go shoot, like, a, a something that's scripted, and I'm running the camera, I'm going to be manual focusing, I'm going to have it rigged out to all this stuff. And it feels like the FX30 maybe isn't that, but has the oper- has the ability to do that if you need to. I just with the ibis and with the with the autofocus, it feels like it's geared towards people who are going to shoot with it handheld and maybe need something that's that's small and light. Maybe like a like vlogging. Sure, why not? I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I and then I think about I think about the lenses, right? Okay, you're shooting in super thirty five. Maybe this opens up opportunity to shoot with you know maybe some like older cine lenses or something that are built for those smaller sensors mm, interesting but yeah you probably probably not going to shoot with those onto you know uh 1800 camera if you're if you're getting into that kind of glass you're going to have a more expensive camera so like that's not necessarily the fit yeah and then i think about all of sony and sigma and tamron's lens lineups that are the smaller aps-c size and I mean, some of those are, are you know, pretty well-renowned, like the Sigma uh, 18 to 35 1.8. Sure. But other than that, I mean, I don't know if there's a lot of those lenses that really seem like they're screaming, use me for a, a dedicated video camera. Right. I mean, I think that I think that is one advantage to it being APS-C is that you can get into lenses for cheaper. I mean, we've talked about E-mount a lot. We think it's a good mount, but... I mean, one of the problems is that at least the kind of the flagship Sony lenses are very expensive. And so, I mean, with this, you could get APS-C lenses, which is mm-hmm. nice. But at the same time, I feel like one of the advantages to this camera is that it could be a stepping stone to one of their higher end cameras. So if you wanted to get an FX3 or an FX6 or something, eventually, I could see this being like, you know, get into the system, learn how the menus work, get some lenses that work and then move up. But the problem is that stuff like the FX3 is full frame. So if you want to do that, you need to be buying full frame mm-hmm. e-glass. 
and that's expensive. I mean, you could spend as much as the cost of the camera on on like a G Master easily, lens. Easily, easily. It's it's really interesting. I do think that it's cool to be able to get something at this price point with like the dual base ISO. The those ISO bases are it's at eight hundred, and then it's twenty five hundred. Which okay. for comparison, the FX three that base ISO is at twenty five six hundred. And so they're doing something different for this camera versus the bigger FX3. I guess it's a different sensor. So It is a different sensor, but uh, with the FX3, they're, they're pushing the gain um, for, that, for that dual gain point. And so what they're having to do is, is they're crushing the dynamic range by maybe a stop in order to give you the better noise performance at that, at okay. that true native ISO. And when I was looking into the FX3 and kind of and comparing it to the FX30, I, I didn't realize that you know, with your, you're shooting full frame on 12 megapixels with a 25600 base ISO. <laughs> like, you basically can see in the dark with no noise. That's crazy. Uh, versus compared to this, at 800 and at 2500, you get the same 14 stops of dynamic range. And so if you're shooting this at the 2500 base ISO, you might be getting more dynamic range than if you're shooting with an FX3 at the uh, 2500 um, native ISO. Interesting. Yes, and then... You know, that is native, so, like, that's the least amount of noise that you're going to see, so you're going to be able to cover those shadows pretty good. And at 2,500, I mean, with, you know, the difference between APS-C and full frame is, like, maybe a stop. So 2,500 is similar to shooting at, like, 1,000, like ISO 1,000 um, on full frame, which is pretty good. Like, if you're shooting at 2.8, ISO 1,024, I mean, that's going to take care of most indoor scenarios. And so I feel like between 800 and 2,500, those are pretty good base ISO set points for this camera were like 800 your outdoor and 2500 your indoor and you're not really going to be missing too much on low light performance you know you'd think that APS-C is not going to be good in low light and so I, I haven't seen any tests on that specifically I mean I've seen I've seen FX30 low light tests but it would be interesting to compare it side by side to the FX3 in low light and see how that actually matches up because mm-hmm. you've got the smaller sensor that just generally seems to have more noise but what you just described seems like maybe it would be better so that'd be that'd be interesting if it was i mean i think one very obvious use for this camera is as like a b cam or a crash cam if you're using other sony Mm -hmm. stuff yeah definitely and with some of the other features like you it has unlimited record time it has built-in fan it doesn't seem to overheat just seems to run out of battery and you can power it over USB-C. so you could easily like rig up this camera somewhere and then just have it on and running and then doing whatever you need to do which i mean that that could be a pretty pretty good feature i don't know if it has a uh wireless video output setting like i think that you can do that um ethernet connection to the xh2s or something and do your your video output but i might be getting that wrong interesting and so I, i wonder if you could do something like that with the fx3 and use it as some sort of live live cam i don't know well, it, it does have, uh, it had some USB streaming stuff okay. that built in. They improved that or did something there. I guess you would just run HDMI out and do something like a Teradek if you're trying to be, be fancy in that sure. way. And I don't yeah, know if what you want that a professional use, thing. Yeah, and I don't know what that use case is, but, you know, some people may need to just rig up a camera. Or maybe if you're super fancy, you just use it as a webcam. Yeah, I mean, that's what the USB thing is kind of, is, uh, that's what they kind of showed it being used for is like, you know, if you're a streamer doing OBS or something, just run, run that. I guess the other big selling points for this one are all of the codecs and uh, log profiles and that, that sort of thing. 
it comes with the Cine EI and S-Log3, and you know supposedly those you know provide pretty good dynamic range and pretty good grading and that sort of thing. I mean, honestly, for the price, I think if if you know you just want to shoot video and you don't need a photo camera at all, I can see an argument for it because. You know, if I'm thinking about other cameras in that price range, I'm thinking about the GH6 or the Blackmagic 6K. And I mean, I think it stacks up pretty well against those cameras. I do feel like it's missing like a weird set of video features, which kind of there's so many things with this camera where it's it's just in a weird spot. Like you, you start with something like the A7S 3 where it's like this is our video focused hybrid camera. And then the FX3 was like the video version of that, but it's all the same internals. And then this is a smaller version of that. And it feels like here's your camera coming farther and farther off the source. But, and you get to this point where they say, here is this $1,800 video focused camera, but you can't shoot with, you can't set shutter angles. And it doesn't have, you know, your vector scopes and it doesn't have your lumograph. And all these, all these video features that like Panasonic has been doing forever and that you have in your Blackmagic cameras. It is cool that it can shoot in like, you know, one, two, four, eight, and 15 frames per second and shoot like lower frame per second. So you don't really see that a lot, but it's still only doing like 24, 30, 60. Like you can't shoot 48. You can't set your shutter speed to one over 48 to be a true, you know, 180 degree angle. It's just, it's, it's like this weird in between, like it's still a hybrid camera, but it's not a hybrid camera. Yeah. I mean, you can't do the, you can't record to an SSD the way you can with the Blackmagic, which right. is a killer feature for something like a cinema camera. If you plug in HDMI to, to run an external monitor and try to put the info display on that monitor, it shuts off the screen yeah. on the camera. It's like, why is that still a thing? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And that's your only screen, right? So it, I just don't get it. So going back to like, where does this slot in and what does it compare to? It seems to me like if you need a video first hybrid camera and not even a hybrid camera you just need like you need a video camera and your budget is two thousand dollars like what are you gonna buy it seems like if you really need the autofocus or you really want to get into sony like that's what you get but i'm trying to figure out you know what is what is comparable to this and there's not really any full frame options that are that are under that two thousand dollar price point that have similar features so obviously at two thousand bucks is the XH two. Oh, okay. So we're gonna talk about Fuji again. <laughs> You're just waiting. <laughs> it always comes. Always comes back to Fuji. Oh, I tried so hard. But you know, that one doesn't have the stack sensor, but you can shoot eight K, and it doesn't shoot open gate, which fine. But it can shoot ProRes internal, and it has you know F log and and because it doesn't have F log two, so it doesn't have quite the you know, improved dynamic range, but it's going to be competitive with the FX. You have the EOS R7 for $1,500. I thought that's, you know, pretty interesting. You could save some money. You could still get C-Log. Can you give me a little bit of a rundown on the R7? I don't know that much about it. Yeah, the R7 is, it's Canon APS-C, which means it has a smaller sensor. It's a 1.6 crop, but it has your basic video features. I mean, it doesn't have quite the same you know, FX30 video features. I would I would say that like a EOS R7 is to an FX30 as an FX30 is to a GH6 as far as feature set. So you can shoot, you know, 24 and C-Log and you can shoot 30 and 60. You're not going to get 240 frames per second. Uh, your 120 is going to be limited to 1080p. It is a 32 megapixel sensor though. So you get higher resolution. It has more photo features. 
it's more of like a cheaper photo camera, but it does give you kind of your base things. But if you're like a vlog person and you're just, you know, shooting handheld or whatever, I mean, the EOS R7 is going to do everything that you need. Does it have IBIS? I, I think it does, but I can't remember. I mean, the EOS R did not have IBIS and everybody still used that as a vlog camera. So yeah. it's not the end of the world, but I mean, even, even then... All the video features you described on that are perfectly sufficient for somebody uh, just starting out with video. I mean, plenty of people have made successful YouTube channels, made short films, etc. with things with those specs. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't need something with FX30 or FX3 features to do video. Sure. And it seems like it basically would hit that hit yeah. that goal at a cheaper price. It has less dynamic range. It does have IBIS. I just checked. Okay. So I think that the, you know, the R7 isn't interesting comparison in that you are you give up features but you you come in cheaper the biggest issue with r7 is that it's an r mount which means that you have to buy r mount glass and they're all full frame and there's not really any you know mm, r mount APS-C stuff you're going to be adapting ef lenses to it you know adap- adapting ef to rf is really not the end of the world i mean i did that for a long time and if you're gonna have to adapt anything at least both of those are owned by canon yeah. You know, so it, it works pretty well, but I mean, adapters still do have their problems. It adds bulk. And I hadn't considered that. I think there actually are some some R APS-C lenses, mm-hmm. a few, but there's not very many. And again, it's like if you're buying into that system, you should probably just buy the full frame lenses anyway. And full frame RF glass is expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I guess if you're looking for APS-C glass you could buy into something like fuji that is only aps-c glass and designed perfectly for it and everything is is just so uh-huh, so uh-huh. just that's so enough about, that's enough of that <laughs> but we've talked about we talked about sony and and e-mount and like e-mounts are a great system to get into and it really does seem like it's what you said right they're trying to they're pushing the fx30 to get people into sony get those e-mount lenses and then you know get them upsell into you know other bodies i think that with the 1800 $1, price point is is very significant if it was if it was two thousand dollars or twenty one hundred dollars i i don't think that you could justify purchasing the fx30 over something like an a7 IV. well i was going to bring up the a7 IV because i think that is an obvious competitor to this camera because if mm-hmm. you're buying if you're if you're kind of sold on sony and you want to go that way then I still think it's something you have to consider. I was talking to somebody recently about about the FX30, and they said that they brought up the point that I hadn't thought about, which is that you know the A7 IV has been out for a while. You can probably find an open box or a used one, and if you look at that, you know it's like twenty three hundred dollars, twenty two hundred dollars, something like that for something in good condition. You know, suddenly it's pretty close. You know, you have to ask yourself: Is it worth spending an extra four or five hundred bucks to get a full frame camera that you know maybe is a little bit better long term i mean i think yes i don't think that the a7 IV has the dual native iso but it has better rolling shutter performance it's going to be maybe a little better in low light the dynamic range is going to be the same or better you get a viewfinder you get better photos yeah if you want to take photos photo, if you want to take photos it's an obvious choice i mean it has basically all the other features right it has the the uh, focus breathing compensation and it has the ibis and it has almost all the features that the fx30 is selling yeah i mean you buy a refurbished one for twenty two hundred dollars i i would take that deal yeah. i the, the fx30 with the with the microphone attachment is 
$2,200. Yeah. Now, of course, using that same logic, wait six months. If you want the FX30, maybe you wait six months and get a used or open box FX30. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. It could only get only get cheaper from there. So it is probably always going to be, you know, still yeah. four four to $700 different. Yeah. I, it's a good thing to kind of mention as an aside that I think buying refurbished or used camera gear is usually a really good move. Oh, for sure. You can save so much money on lenses, camera bodies. I mean, I bought my EOS R used for thirteen seventy five, mm-hmm. and that's still less money than they cost today. I bought the camera like two years ago, and if you want to buy a new one today, they're like fifteen hundred. Yeah, it's it's great, and and my camera was in great condition. There was no problem with it. So I mean, something like that, buying like a used A seven four, I would consider that a perfectly reasonable option compared to a new FX thirty. And that's a really good point. I would buy an FX thirty over an EOS R at this point if video was was my main focus. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. The EOSR was fine on video, but it's been outclassed by some of these things. And I mean, especially, like I said, the EOSR is still $1,500 new. That's too much money for what that is. I'd right. get the R7 over it too. I can't seem to figure out figure out this camera. It's, it just, it feels like there's so many, so many things that are new to the industry right now that would have been great to see in a, a cheaper FX series camera. Like, it would have been cool to see open gate. It would have been neat to have shutter angle. It would have been cool to have it be a stacked sensor. And it's weird that it has all these these crop limitations. And it feels like this camera is on par with what we were seeing coming out, like, one or two years ago. You know, maybe you want ProRes internal or, or whatever. So I think about that. And then I'm like, okay, well, if my budget is $1,800, what else is on the market? And there just isn't anything. And then, you know, maybe you want something that can do photos, but has, is in the Sony ecosystem is at this price point. It just doesn't exist because Sony hasn't come out with any APS-C cameras since the A6400. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because, I mean, we, I think we both know that not everybody wants to spend $2,500, $3,500 on mm-hmm. a camera. I mean, when we both started, we thought spending $500 on a camera was a lot. So True. people have different budgets. But... Yeah, it's like, what do you buy instead? I mean, the A6400, I didn't realize it was that old, but you said three years ago? 2019. Yeah, yep. that's a really long time. So much has happened since then, and it makes you wonder, is there something new coming out? I mean, why doesn't the FX30 have some of the, like, a stack sensor or some of those other features? Is it some sort of supply chain thing where they just can't make enough of the sensors that they would need? It has to be cost. I think that the stack sensors are probably just that complicated to manufacturer and you compare the high resolution 40 megapixel xh2 against the xh2s and it's a 500 difference sure and i would imagine that it's probably similar for the fx30 if they were able to source a stack sensor i mean they make all the sensors because it's sony but yeah, they yeah like they, make... they literally make fuji x-tran sensors yeah but i would imagine that it probably would have pushed this over two thousand dollars and that it, the price point was what they were trying to hit I think it was smart of them to hit that $1,800 price Absolutely. point. Absolutely, It doesn't, there's nothing that compares to it, which is so weird. You would think that, you know, they'd come out with this camera and you're like, why are they coming out with this, this cheap camera and then in a saturated market? And then you go look at that end of the market and there's nothing there. So I think that, you know, Sony is probably well due to come out with, you know, their A7000 series of cameras and everyone's kind of waiting to see if that's going to happen. I mean, it has to, right? It has to. They, they it has can't. To. They can't have all their cameras be 
1800 and up. Yeah, I mean, if they came out with, they came out with their series of A7000s and, you know, one of them, like, say, the A7500, for example, has is like a stack sensor. Maybe they release it for $2,600 or, or $2,400. They could push Fuji, like, right out of that market, who's kind of sitting there by themselves in that mid, mid-price tier with, with, you know, the stack sensor performance. I mean, they, they make the sensor. It seems like they're going to go that way. I could definitely see that happening, but I also think about the people that want to spend $900 on a camera, mm-hmm. and nobody wants to buy a, any sort of tech product from three years ago. You know, they, they've got to come out with something new. They have to, but I don't know. It's I mean, it is APS season, so... <laughs> Anything could happen. <laughs> <laughs> Magical time of year. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess we'll see... I guess we'll see where it ends up. You know, yeah. have to keep, we'll see if it's the next big YouTuber camera. But I feel like the reactions I've seen so far have been generally positive. Yeah. But I don't know. I think ever I think everyone's really into it. And you get S log three, I guess, and like you get the cool video features. I just I don't know. I just it doesn't seem like anything that I would ever buy. Like I would spend I would spend two thousand dollars not two thousand dollars. Yeah, well I would spend two hundred dollars more. And I would buy an XH2. Yeah, of course you would. We all know that. <laughs> I can't. Big shocker. <laughs> Lucas would buy the Fuji camera. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's just so good. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Get all those Fuji colors. Get shooting classic nag. Eterna. F-Log. <laughs> just keep reading the feature list there. Yep, yep, yep. yep. 8K. <laughs> All right, well, I need to get you off that topic, so let's go ahead and move on and shift gears a little bit. So we wanted to talk about an interview that we recently did and kind of talk through some of our process and I guess really mostly like what gear we used and what things we brought with us that we were maybe surprised that we liked using or things that we brought and didn't use. So I guess to start with, can you kind of give us an overview of what we were doing and then we can talk about how we approached it. Yeah, so we were shooting an interview and some B-roll for that interview. We had a set period of time where the interview was going to happen at 10:30 and we needed to get some stuff before and some stuff after and needed to be able to do a setup and we were going to bring all the gear with us, set it up, do the shoot, tear it down and be done in the matter of, you know, 3 to 4 hours total. And so it was really important that like we can't bring the whole kitchen sink and ideally it needs to fit into one bag and it needs to be of really good quality. And it was kind of it kind of felt to me almost like shooting a documentary where we weren't we were trying to not be obtrusive into the situation. Right, that too. It wasn't something that had been set up just for us to film. We were kind of going into it was it was a volunteering thing and we were kind of going into a, a situation where the person we were interviewing was doing her volunteering and we didn't want to be in the way and exactly. know, be causing problems and so it did kind of limit what we were able to do for setup and what kind of shots we were able to get. Also interesting in that we didn't know exactly where we were going to record or what it was going to look like, how much natural light we were going to have, how many lights we needed. It was kind of like we knew we were going to get a room and you know we had to figure it out on set at you know time of, make sure we weren't missing anything and, and get it done. So <laughs> what I brought, oh boy. I brought. It's more like what didn't you bring? <laughs> I brought the XH2S and the XT3. I brought too many lenses, more lenses than I needed, which was the Viltrox 85, the Sigma 3014, the Tamron 17 to 70, and a Canon EF 17 
70 to 200. That is a lot of lenses. It's too many lenses. I didn't need How many of those did you end up using? I used every single one of them (laughs) because I'm a monster. No. Uh, We shot, I shot A-roll on the 31.4 during the interview. And I got a little bit of B-roll during the interview with the X-T3 on the 17 to 70. And then the B-roll 4 that we got outside of that, I shot on the 17 to 70 and the 85. And then there was a few shots that I got on the 70 to 200. But realistically, I'm just going to end up using all of your shots off of the 50 to 140. The 50 to 140 was really nice. That was my first time shooting with it. <laughs> and uh, it's a pretty sweet lens. Yeah. I mean, it, it also helps that it has IBIS. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that you use the 17 to 70 a lot for some of the B-roll. And yep. I mean... Or just e- a little bit. Oh, 17 to 70. Yeah. yeah. Even with a camera that has built-in IBIS like the X-H2S does... Even then, I still feel like you can tell the difference between a lens that has stabilization and one that doesn't. And mm-hmm. if you're shooting B-roll, especially with a long lens, having IBIS is killer. I mean, I'm shooting I'm shooting handheld with the 50 to 140 XF lens with OAS plus IBIS on, plus the digital stabilization plus IBIS boost, and like trying to hold it as steady as possible, still getting shake at 140 millimeters. Yeah. So. That was a little frustrating because I thought that maybe, you know, with all those super sweet features, but um, I don't know, maybe I just had too much coffee. <laughs> Could be that. But I mean, after a point, though, you can fix some of it in post. You, you warp stabilizer or whatever. Mm-hmm, and sure. if you shoot at a higher frame rate, you can deal with it as yeah. long as it's not like shaking all over the place. But Yeah. And honestly, I'm not really not really too worried about that. I mean, maybe I just need a little bit of shaky cam footage in the final edit. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's what that's going to give it a little bit of spice it needs. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe so. So those that was cameras and lenses. And then for audio, I brought my Zoom H4, which we had problems with on on set, which was annoying. Uh, and then I brought two mic, two XLR cables, and the the shotgun mic that I had, which was the AT875R. Our main audio was with the DJI and the Lav. Yep. So yes. that wireless mic. And then I brought an extra power bank and a bunch of cables, and I brought a Rode video mic for scratch audio in case I needed it couple NPF batteries and then for lighting I brought my Godox VL150 and then we borrowed a Godox 60 for fill light. Yeah, and, and then, those are just kind of standard LED lights. These yeah. the big soft boxes. Right. Pretty reasonable. I put all of this except for the light in my Peak Design 45 liter and it weighed 32 pounds, <laughs> including including the the tripod. And you're lucky that you only had to carry it from the car into the building because <laughs> yep. that would have been brutal <laughs> otherwise. Oh boy. Well, I don't I mean, most of what I brought was really a lot of overlap with you. So I also used a Fuji X-H2S. And I'm going to comment on some of my stuff as I uh, mention it. But it was really nice, I think, that we were both using the same camera for a couple of reasons. One is that in the edit, we're not going to have to do as much color matching between them, which is really nice. But kind of the other benefit is that I could go over your camera and know exactly how to operate the menus. And besides you having different custom buttons than me, if I needed to go in and change some setting on your camera, I wasn't having to ask you where it was. I just kind of knew. And that was, that's a really nice benefit. That was noticeably different because usually whenever we're, we're doing shoots or, you know, the last number of things we've did, we've done, I was shooting on an X-T3 and you were shooting on either an EOS R or a GH5. And all of those have very different menus and very different settings. And anytime we had to swap cameras, it was always a little bit of little fumbly. And then, yeah, grading it. I mean, I'm not the best color grader. I'm okay. And I can mostly color match between a GH5 and an X-T3 because we've done it so many times. But it's still kind of a pain, and it's going to be really nice to not have to do that. Yeah, for sure. As far as lenses, I brought the 17-70 to f2.8. 
That's uh, Tamron and the uh, 50 to 140 Fuji. I did bring my 31.4, but I didn't use it at all. Uh, you know, like we said, we were kind of in a situation where we didn't know what kind of B-roll we were going to be able to capture, and we didn't really have time to set up for those shots, and so I didn't want to be swapping lenses constantly. So I used the 17 to 70 for a lot of it, and then switched the 50 to 140 to get some tight shots. But I mean, in those situations, as much as I like primes and like having the wide aperture, I think I prefer being able to get the wider zoom. And you can imagine, yeah, you might want to be able to zoom in to get somebody far away and get like a close-up shot of what they're doing, but then maybe unexpectedly they walk toward you and you want to suddenly be able to get a wide shot of them mm-hmm. talking to people. And it's nice to be able to do that stuff without having to change lenses. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Not having to change lenses while shooting, with, especially whenever it's like you have to get all your B-roll in 30 minutes and you just got to get what you got, what you can get, and that's mm-hmm. what you're going to use. Obviously, you're going to use a zoom. I think that's pretty good on the lenses. I was also happy with the 5140. I haven't looked at any of the footage, but it seemed like I was able to capture pretty good stuff with that. Uh, at some point, we'll have to cover that lens in more detail because it seems like a really good lens. Mm-hmm. But let's talk more about the audio side. So I brought my H, my Zoom H5, and we ended up using that for some of our audio because we were having a little bit of trouble with the H4n. Uh, but the main audio that we used was from the DJI mic. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk a little bit, I guess, on what we did with that, the way the ways we used it and what we thought about it uh, in terms of how it worked. Yeah, so we mic'd up the person that we were going to interview before even shooting any of the B-roll, and we just we just set it to record. And the idea being that maybe we're going to mix in some of that mm-hmm. audio as we, as we cut things in and edit. I mean, it was basically like, she got there, we said hi, and we were like, here's this mic, put this on. <laughs> put this on. <laughs> and I was, it ran out of battery on us. It recorded for about an hour, and then the the wireless receiver died. And I was surprised. I it thought was it the was tran- the transmitter died. The transmitter died, sorry. And I was, I was really surprised. I thought we were going to get a lot more record time out of it. I was surprised, too. I had been thinking the battery life was around four or five hours. I'm going to have to look that spec up now, and then I kind of want to check and see. It's making me wonder if it's like maybe you can because it's always transmitting. I don't think you can turn off the the audio transmitting part. That's what I was gonna ask. Is maybe it was it was transmitting or maybe it was searching to to get a signal or something. Maybe so. I don't know. We're gonna have to, I'm gonna have to try it. I'm just gonna have to set it up at home and start the recording and see what happens. It was disappointing that it died that early, but I thought it was really cool that we were able to turn that on mm-hmm. and start it recording and kind of just let her go do her thing mm-hmm. and it would capture stuff. And the other neat thing about it is that even while it's recording and even when we're not doing anything on the camera, we have that wireless receiver and that's showing mm-hmm. us the levels from, right. from what that uh, transmitter is picking up. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that and make sure it's not clipping. And then you can actually adjust the transmitter gain from that receiver. Unit. Yeah. You can start and stop the recording from it and you can adjust the gain. And so especially in a situation like that, like I'm, I'm thinking about if you're doing like a wedding or an event mm-hmm. or something, it's just super cool that you can put that thing on somebody and you can start and stop the recording. If you needed to take some video, you would know that your audio was synced up with what they're doing. I mean, it's just having a wireless option for that is really, really nice. Yeah, I, I super love being able to use that thing whenever we're, whenever we're shooting. It's, it's super handy. A couple of the downsides there, the, the battery obviously being a concern if that's, if it really can only do about an hour, then you're gonna be you're gonna have to be swapping those transmitters out, mm-hmm. and you can't just like change the battery. Yeah, it's built in and it has to go back into the little AirPod style case. You may be able to charge them over USB. 
Sure. I'm not sure. But I'm thinking of like if you have someone mic'd and and it's a long it's a long form thing. Yeah, that's you're gonna just, be a you're just gonna have to like swap them every hour, yeah. which could be pretty annoying. And then mounting it onto the cage handle or onto the cage itself was limiting because it didn't seem like there was any way to cinch down on the cold shoe mount. And so there was a couple cold shoes that I couldn't put it on and have it be securely attached to the camera. And so I was kind of always thinking in the back of my head, you know, don't let that DJI receiver fall off. Right. I mean, I guess that's what gaff tape's for, but... (laughs) <laughs> not, <laughs> not really what you want to have to do so yeah it, that's that's definitely something they could improve it's it's weird too because if you put that onto the hot shoe of a camera mm-hmm. it's like a really really tight fit right like i have to get my palm and push it down onto the camera and i'm like trying to not break the screen on the receiver mm-hmm. as i'm doing it like it's really hard to push on but then you stick it on a cold shoe and it's like falling out so yeah it's, it's so strange they they should have put some sort of thing on there where you could tighten it down that's a little annoying i guess they want it to be as small as possible and sure you could tape it in that was it was just kind of a downside yeah but that was really the main audio we used for the interview so we we clipped that transmitter on and then we ran a lav mic we we plugged the lav mic into that transmitter and just ran that up to her collar and that was i think we treated that as basically like our a-roll audio and then we had backup audio from a shotgun to the h4n which, if you don't know or you haven't used those handy recorders, one, they're fantastic, but two, if you, whenever you put the uh, an SD card in it, specifically the H4n, it has to like initialize, and the larger the card is, the longer it takes. And so if you put something like a 64 or a 32 gig card in there, it can take upwards of a minute and a half for the thing to turn on. And so we had this problem where it lost power and then it was taking for like longer than usual to turn on. And we couldn't tell if it was the SD card causing an initialization problem or if it was something else. And that was like, okay, are we ready to record? And crap. Yeah. Yeah, that was a problem. And we, we tried to pull the H5 out. And I think what we ended up doing was using the H4n, but we used a smaller sd card that i had yeah we swapped in an eight gig card yeah that problem i just think is ridiculous i don't you you should not be buying anything now that struggles with an eight gig card sure yeah it's that's it's almost a deal breaker on that one but i mean they don't make the h4n anymore i mean i bought it three four years ago at this point and so it, it still holds up still a pretty good pretty good deal but you're gonna buy something like an h5 or whatever they're currently on i don't i don't even know what the current model is i mean i i do still love those recorders and in that situation i really liked having the backup audio because Mm -hmm. you just never know what's going to happen i mean especially with a lab if it if somebody hits the cable maybe you'll get a weird pop or something and it doesn't take that much effort to set up an extra microphone and just have it record Mm -hmm. during the interview and so we did that as backup I don't think you've listened to the audio yet, so you don't know if you're going to have to use that or not, but it's yeah, just nice no, to I have. Can, I can talk about it later once I, once I get a chance to go through all the audio, but it feels like for so much so much stuff that we've done similar to this, it's all belt and suspenders, right? It's like record two forms of audio, always triple check your settings, make sure your camera's recording. We used your X-H2S as a, a B-cam, so we had a, a tight profile and then we had a wider, wider field of view and, and that sort of thing talking about lighting we did the key light with the vl 150 mm-hmm. and that light is uh it's specifically a video light in that under i think under 25 percent 
the fan doesn't even turn on. And otherwise, the fan's really, really quiet. Do you know about what you had it on? I had it at like 30%. Okay. I mean, it was it was the only light in the room. And we recorded such that the window and the light were coming from the same direction. Mm-hmm. And then I should have turned the closed the blinds for the window. My thought was I would use that as like backfill yeah. behind her. We ended but, up using the, the SL60 for backfill. Right. And the light did change a smidge during the recording mm. and I didn't close the window and I was like, Oh no, is it going to clip? But it didn't, it didn't clip because we shot an F log. That's not why it didn't clip. Anyway, we, yeah, we used the SL 60 as, as backfill. So that, that worked out good. I felt like we got decent separation with just those two lights. Um, maybe in a more intense layout, we would have done maybe two lights in the back instead of, instead of just one. But I think it worked out okay. Yeah, and, and that lighting setup was pretty simple. I brought the Aperture MCs with me in case mm-hmm. we wanted to try and add a little bit of practical interest to the background. But kind of going back to the whole situation we had, we really didn't have a lot of time to set up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just can't stage everything perfectly and make a really beautiful scene. And honestly, a lot of times it probably doesn't really matter because for sure. most interviews, especially something like this, it's not like you're going to stay on the shot of her in the interview for long periods of time. You're going to want to be cutting in B-roll, make things more interesting. Yep. And so it just doesn't really matter that much. I mean, it was a simple setup. It didn't take us long to put it together, and I think it looked pretty good. Yeah, I think so too. And then talking about how we shot it, we shot it in open gate, so 6.2K at 23.98 frames per second. And that was with a 4.22 long GOP, so we didn't shoot it in all eye, we didn't shoot it in ProRes, mostly because I think that with a 325 gig card, um, ProRes is like, if you shoot ProRes HQ, it's 16 minutes of footage. Yeah, and we would have needed the Ninja to do that. Yeah, and our our main interview was actually 16 minutes, and so we wouldn't have been able to do it. Yeah, well, we could have, we could have nailed it just right. Just, Perfect, yep. done. Uh, and so that's 16, we shot it at 320 megabit per second, you know, compression size, and that was 35 gigs. Yeah, that's per, per that's camera. You need a lot of storage space for all that. Yeah. Now, what was the reason for shooting an open gate? So, we're going to deliver in 1080p, and I wanted to be able to reframe up and down as much as I can. I basically wanted as much resolution, and I really like the idea of shooting in that 3x2 so that you can cut your 16x9 frame out of it and get it just exactly where you want. And then, especially since we're shooting in, in or we're delivering in 1080. I just have a lot of flexibility. Yeah, now. you can punch all the way in. You can get like every pore on every her face. Pore. And we, so I've I've shot a lot of stuff with XH2S since I got it, but I haven't really delivered a project with footage from it yet. Yeah, which means I haven't spent you know hours and hours kind of like zooming in and staring at footage and color grading and like noise reducing and and all that stuff. I can't believe that's not what you do on Friday nights anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's tempting. Uh, but for this, like, I shot it. We shot the main A roll with a prime lens, and we shot it at f5, right? And so 5.6 to f8, that's going to be your sharpest, you know, region of that lens. And we shot it in 6.2K. And so ideally, like, that footage is going to be the best that it should ever look. It was controlled lighting, and it was maybe 0.3 to 0.6 overexposed, and it's in 14 bit, and it, like, it's going to be the best 
the best version of that footage that I'm probably going to get out of that camera. And so for that reason, I'm really excited to get into the grade and get into the edit and just see how good I can make it look. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is going to be interesting too. I've been wanting to see what that would... I've been wanting to see what F-Log 2 looks like graded. Mm -hmm. And since we got the cameras, we really haven't been able to do any big projects. And so it it is going to be really interesting to see. Yeah, I think... I mean, my last video that I put out was in F-Log 1 or 2. I did find that there was some interesting how the LUD applies and how it looks with with F-Log 2. I mean, for some of it, I took an F-Log 2 footage and I put an X-T3 F-Log 1 LUT on it, and it gave me a more pleasing oh, final interesting. image than using the XL2 LUT. Huh. And I think it's because maybe like it was overexposed or like the way that it handles handles the highlight and that sort of thing. Well, maybe once you get a chance to work on this project and grade some of the footage, maybe we can come back and talk about what your experiences were and what mm-hmm. you whether you learned anything because yeah i still wonder sometimes with log do i need to expose a little bit higher than normal or not you know it seems like different cameras behave differently in terms of do you need to be more worried about shadows or more worried about highlights so i'm kind of interested to see what you learn so much of it comes down to you know knowing how to work with the footage and like like you can you can talk about the specs right like the the shooting in F log with the 14 bit readout and all this cool stuff it's like don't just don't don't clip and then you have seven stops of leeway that you can pull up or down and still have usable information and so as long as you're like within those seven stops you should be able to get it to work but depending upon like how that log profile is compressing and like where it's compressing your stops. Is it doing it on the high end? Is it doing it on the low end? Yep. All that's going to impact like how you grade it before you do the Rec. 709 conversion and after you do the Rec. 709 conversion and, and all that stuff. And because there all those profiles are different and F-Log2 is more compressed and that the the middle gray is a different, it's at a different, you know, Luma value than like F-Log2. F log one, right. it's like a third stop higher or something. And so just dealing with, with grading that is going to be so much different than dealing with grading F log one. And honestly, I never really shot an F log one. So it's, I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting to learn exactly how to make it look the best. And I guess what I'm getting at is that the specs say, you know, this is, this is fantastic and you have so much to work with, but if it's impossible to get to a final, you know, final delivered product, without you know hours and hours of of grading then it's like why why am i even doing this yeah i mean that's mostly why i haven't really shot and logged that much Mm -hmm. on the gh5 you had to buy log right it didn't come with it which Mm -hmm. is goofy yeah and i bought it and almost never used it Mm -hmm. because when i was working on projects i didn't want to take time to have to grade it and get all that to work i just wanted it to look right and so I just used a standard color profile and maybe made some little tweaks to it, and it was fine. And I never felt like the projects I delivered looked bad. Right. And so now, now that I have a camera that has really good dynamic range in log, it makes me want to shoot in log, and it makes me want to make things look the best they can possibly look. And I know that you can push the colors around more, and I know it makes more sense to do, but I still don't feel comfortable with that workflow and so i don't know if it's worth it or not so i'm curious to see what you learn yeah me too it's for the xt3 i love i love the way that eternal looks and you have those options to shoot in dr 100 200 400 which are extended dynamic range modes but still built into a standard color profile and so it's not delivering you a flatter image but 
it does give you more more dynamic range by pushing that that ISO up, that base ISO. So if you're shooting DR400, the base ISO is 640. And it's the exact same base ISO as if you're shooting an F-Log1, 640. So I found that when I shot an F-Log1 and I applied Fuji's Eternal LUT, and when I shot an Interna at DR400, I had basically the same result. And the X-T3 didn't come with a built-in F-Log LUT monitor. And so you're having to like figure out how to expose in this flat profile unless you're using an external monitor. And so I was like, if it looks the same, like why am I not just going to shoot in a Turna with DR400? Yeah. And so that's what I did. Much, I much less work on the editing side. Still mm-hmm. looks really good. Way less work. And so I basically never shot an F-Log because there was never really good reason to. And if I didn't have a monitor, I found that if you underexposed F-Log, it gets real nasty and real muddy on the X-T3. So it's like, don't underexpose it. If anything, you know, give yourself like one stop or two-thirds stop overexposed. Yeah. And so that's just kind of how I learned how to shoot on it, and that's why I don't have a lot of experience grading F-Log. But then this camera, the X-H2S, it's F-Log 2 is where all the where all the you know, money is. It's like you want that 14-bit readout. You want those extra two stops of dynamic range. I feel like I have to shoot an F-Log 2. It also feels like when you see people review these cameras and people that we respect that talk about cameras, it feels like they all shoot in log. And there's got to be a reason for it. I think it's I think it's peer pressure. I think they're just shooting in log because they, they think they have to. I mean, because I, I do question that. Like, if you're in a studio environment, I used to make YouTube videos. I'm doing them in a room that I can completely control the lighting. Mm-hmm. There's not a need for extreme dynamic range i don't have the sky in my shot or whatever and it it always made me wonder am i really going to get anything out of doing this is it really going to look any better i guess i need to do a side-by-side test and see but i just i really questioned whether that was going to be worth it i feel like the answer is not really and also it depends like not really and also it depends yeah i mean shooting in shooting in like a really high bit rate codec or shooting in raw you're doing it because you know you're going to be pushing that footage around. You're going to be doing a lot of grading and trying to like bring up shadows and lower highlights and, and change the color and all this sort of thing. And it's like you need as much information as you can. And where log comes in is all about that dynamic range. It's like you want to capture you know, as wide of a difference between the brightest and the darkest. And so in a controlled you know, studio setting where you're, you know, a YouTube video or like one person lit... It's like you don't really need to, you know, stretch the shadows and the highlights. Everything's really going to fit within maybe eight stops and it's going to look fine. And so it's like you're kind of just wasting disk space and, and you know, information that you just don't need. So I do think, like, maybe one of the advantages of log is it has to do with, like, how you're displaying the distance between your different stops of exposure. Um, basically the roll-off. And so whenever, like, if you if you have a, a very dramatic light on someone's face, like, it's off to one side, and you're getting, like, that beautiful little triangle on the other side of their nose, and it's, like, kind of shadow on one side and light on the other. Sure. You want that roll-off from the lit side to the dark side to be as pleasing as possible. Mm. And what that means is that, like, maybe the space between the stops on the brightest part of their face and the darkest part of their face have the most, you know, maybe like stretch or compression depending upon how you want it to look. And so log may either give you, may either, may either automatically give you more there or may give you more ability to adjust that. 
Yeah, so like if you know exactly where the like the sweet spot, like the middle of that log profile is, and you set that right at the middle gray of that scene, then it gives you maybe more, maybe a couple extra stops on the high end or a couple extra stops on the low end to get that roll off effect. So okay. like it's the same deal with like uh, like shooting an eight bit versus ten bit, right? All the color banding, where like now there's just more, you know, colors in between like this this color and that this shade of red and this shade of red sure. and so you don't get you don't get the banding between i think that you know you get the more dynamic range you get out of shooting a log profile is the same same feel with like light roll off okay i i can buy that i think that makes sense i still don't know if it makes sense to mix footage within a project or not like i'm also kind of curious about that you know will you be able to take something that wasn't shot in log and make it look good with something that was shot in log i think it just depends on how much work you want to do yeah. and because you could probably you know always give up a certain number of stops on one end or, or the other of that log and then match it down to sure. the non-log version yeah for our thing we shot everything in log yeah f log two mm-hmm Yep, and they're going to have all that sweet dynamic range, and it's going to look beautiful. Yep. Probably. Well, we'll see. Probably. Ho- hopefully, you'll make it look beautiful. <laughs> I think one last thing I wanted to mention on that project that I thought was interesting was that we learned from the last time we did one of these that when you deliver a final thing and you have B-roll of a person interacting in a room or just doing their thing, whether it's them doing their job or whatever, it really helps to have audio of that situation. Mm-hmm. And we don't always think about that. And you you, you, know, you kind of imagine like, well, they're going to be talking, like I'm going to be interviewing them and I'm going to have that audio over it. And then I'm going to be showing some B-roll of them working or, you know, handing some food to a kid or whatever it is they're doing. And you kind of think, I don't need any any other audio. I've got them talking. I don't want to right. be distracting. Talking and music and that sort of thing. But it turns out it really does sound a lot better and kind of like, immerses you more in the situation if you just have the room audio of whatever was happening Mm -hmm. and so that's why we put the lav on her whenever she was going around doing her stuff because we could get some of it that way and then we also both had the road video micro on our cameras and so that way at least anytime you're recording audio you've got some sort of mic recording the sound in the room Mm -hmm. and i think you're going to find in the edit that it's really nice to have that like i said you can just immerse somebody more in the situation if you have those environmental sounds it makes the final edit so much more engaging. Sound design is it's like this whole, you know, missing component for a lot of a lot of projects where, you know, maybe you don't notice it or you don't think about it, but just the the sound for every visual that you see can really bring up the engagement and, and improve improve any sort of video. Yeah, I know that's something that I haven't done very much in my projects and it just seems like it's super important and I think that I want to spend more time doing it, but it starts with when you're capturing it. Yeah. And even though you can find, you know, you can get online, you can find sound clips of room full of kids or whatever it is, but it's easier just to capture it while you're there. And then it's like the real sounds that were in the room. Mm-hmm. And Oh, it's, it's, it's super annoying to not have thought about what sound you're going to need on set. And then in post, you have to go searching on Google or Artlist or whatever to find like all these sounds of whatever the thing is. And so then on top of like, having to do the whole sound design, which is, I mean, it can take as long as it takes to cut or to grade just doing that little, that sound design piece. If you have to also find all the, all the audio components is such a pain having, when we shot the horror short, having gone through and like collected every single sound that I knew I was going to use was very beneficial because I wish went through and I named them all based upon what they were. And, you know, was able to build the sound around it. And we didn't use any of the audio that we recorded 
It was just the music and the sound design. Yeah. And so it's just, it's worth thinking about that as you're at the event and doing it because Mm -hmm. a few moments there to plug in a microphone and put on your camera is going to save you a lot of time later. Yep. Yep. Or even after the fact, you know, grabbing something like a zoom or even your phone with a microphone on it and just going around and collecting a number of sounds based upon like what you shot. And then you get to be the weird guy that's like wearing headphones and scurrying around recording things. Yeah. Perfect. That is exactly my go-to look. Yep. So out of all the gear that you brought, is there anything that you didn't use or that you feel like you were missing? Well, I didn't use one of the lenses, which I feel okay about because I brought it in case we needed it for a roll. Honestly, I, I pretty much used the things I brought and each of them had their place. I don't really feel like I had anything extra. I mean, part of that is because I have a much smaller backpack than yours. Mm-hmm. No, mine isn't a Mary Poppins bag that fits everything. <laughs> and so, you know, it kind of forced me to think about what do I really need and I mean, pretty much I used everything I brought. What about you? I think I used everything that I brought. I even brought a spare XLR cable and used that. So that's pretty sweet. I didn't use any of the gaff tape that I brought. That's disappointing. But I uh, don't regret bringing it. Always bring gaff tape. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's good. You know, we, we knew what we needed and we brought it. And I mean, it's better to have it and not need it most of the time. But at the same time, like, I do think you can get distracted by having mm-hmm. too much stuff. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And it's it's easy to over-prepare, over-bring over things, and and you know, and you're carrying all this extra gear, and it just... I thought that this shoot for us went really well, and that we had everything that we needed. The setup went smooth, the teardown went smooth. We had one hiccup with one piece of gear during the interview, but I, it's not going to be a big problem. And we had a spare. If and we, we had it. a spare just in case, and I think, it, I think it all worked out. Yeah, I think so too. You got anything else you wanted to cover on that? No, I think that's about it. All right. Well, I guess we're done then. That's going to do it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed it, we'd encourage you to rate us on iTunes and tell your photography friends about the show. Also, check out our website at cameragearpodcast.com to learn more or send us feedback and questions. We'll be back with more next week.